We come now to the time of our sermon, and if you have your Bibles, be turning to Jonah chapter 2, and you might, if you'd already turned to Matthew 12, you might just keep your finger there or your place marker there, because we will be moving there in, in just a moment. But as we think about uh, this text, we want to think about the prophet Jonah, and all that we've been looking at in this remarkable little book of Scripture, a, a minor prophet, we make this point often, that it is minor in size, not in importance. In fact, you could argue Jonah is of such great importance that Jesus, when speaking of his own work, including uh, his resurrection, he speaks of the sign of Jonah. He says, Jonah is a picture of what I am to do, a sign to a generation, a wicked generation, as we heard Brother Ben read a moment ago. And so, if you think about this, it is an important book. It's a book we're well familiar with, a book we know from our earliest days if we uh, are in church and, and have a family that reads to us of the Scriptures, or even if we have some Bible storybooks or something where we see the story of Jonah and this encounter with this great fish, often called a whale. And I apologize, last week I grew up hearing whale, I may say whale, but it's just a great fish. That's what the Bible says, a great fish. And it says that this great fish was prepared by God for this purpose. It may be that God uh, did some miraculous work to prepare a particular fish uh, that we wouldn't even have recognition of as being able to uh, swallow a human being. It really isn't the point, is it? The point is God did something miraculous here in delivering Jonah. And if we get too caught up on a naturalistic explanation, we miss the point of Scripture, which is God who can do all things, for nothing is too hard for God, has delivered Jonah in this way. Now, that is what this book is about. It's about deliverance. Even when we withstand it, even when we resist it, even when we're not happy with what God is doing, God is a delivering God. God delivers many people just in this short book. He delivers the mariners who are on the boat with Jonah. He delivers Jonah. He delivers Nineveh. All these things we see in this book. But it's a significant book because it's a challenging book. There are many layers here. As we peel them back, we see more and more. And today, just this one verse we're looking at, chapter 2, verse 10, is so deep. If you want to go into it in terms of biblical theology or covenantal theology, there is much to be said here about what is being spoken of in the deliverance of Jonah. But we want to see that Jonah is a story of a prophet who doesn't want to do what God's called him to do. There's no way to gussy that up. There's no way to make it pretty. Jonah does not want to do what God has called him to do. Now, the reasons are more complicated than what we often hear as children. Uh, it isn't that he's afraid of Nineveh. It's not, as the VeggieTales said, that they think he, he's going to get slapped in the face with a fish or something like that. There were reasons to fear the Ninevites. Right? The Ninevites were a wicked people, a brutal people. We talked about in our first week, they really were a people who went beyond the pale in terms of brutality. They didn't have the numbers advantage or a technological advantage. The way they went on their conquering mission was to make it intolerable to lose to them. So you surrendered before the battle began. We call that today terrorism, don't we, more or less. Surrender or we'll make you miserable, we'll make you suffer. That's really what the Assyrians were. They were terrorists. They uh, did despicable things to people if you lost to them. And so no one liked them. No one liked them. Jonah is no exception to that. He hates them. Israel, the northern kingdom of which he is a prophet, has had dealings with Assyria. They've suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. He doesn't like the Assyrians. And so when God calls him to go on a mission to Nineveh, to preach to these Ninevites, to 
to say to them that God's judgment will come if they do not repent, he doesn't want to go. Not because he fears for his personal safety. I like what uh, Hugh Martin said of that. What an affront that is to Jonah to say that. He's afraid. This man has been a prophet of God in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel. It was not safe to be a prophet of God, faithful to God, in Israel. It was dangerous. Most of the northern kingdom prophets were murdered, were killed. So Jonah has faced death his entire ministry. And now he comes to go out uh, and to preach to the Ninevites. It's not fear. Jonah tells us why he doesn't want to go, or maybe I should correct myself and say it is fear. It's just not fear for his safety. It's fear for what God is going to do. Jonah fears that God will do exactly what he is afraid he will do, and that is bring, bring redemption to a people he hates. That's what he says. I knew you would do this, God. I knew this is what you were doing because you are long-suffering and merciful, and all the things that Jonah heretofore has loved about God, now he hates. Because God will even save the Ninevites, the despicable, brutal, evil Ninevites. What does that say about God? And see, I have various ideas of what Jonah's motive here is to save God from himself, his reputation, uh, to just not be a part of it. We dealt with some of this. But he runs. He doesn't think he can run from God or hide from God. He knows who God is. He declares it himself. I am a Hebrew. I serve the God who made all things. He made the heavens and he made the earth. He made the, the land and he made the sea. He made all that is in them. He made it all. I cannot hide from him. Jonah doesn't think... He can hide. It says he ran from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of Jehovah or Yahweh. These are covenantal terms. That is the covenantal name of God. He said, I'm running from the presence of the Lord amongst his people. I'm going to get away where he won't trouble me anymore. Let him bother someone else with this. But I won't be the one to go. So he runs. But he realizes God's going to pursue. God pursues him in the form of a storm doesn't he? The scripture says in Hebrew that, he, that God threw a storm at Jonah. Threw it. God is responsible for this storm that is so serious that the ship would be broken apart by it. Jonah's running, but he can't run far. And now he's put these other men on the boat in danger. They're going to die too. I think we talked about this two weeks ago. They're not innocent. Some people say they're innocent. They're innocent of what Jonah's doing here. But we know they're not innocent in the eyes of God because the first thing they do is pray to idols to be delivered from the storm. Surprise, it doesn't avail. But these are not innocent men in the eyes of God. If God brings that ship down and everyone on board dies, guess what? He is not unrighteous to do so. But his target here is one man, even Jonah. And the sailors begin to cast lots. We talked about the complications there. They cast lots. And it falls to Jonah. Jonah is the man. Just as Nathan the prophet said to David, you are the man. They know Jonah is the man. And Jonah is caught sleeping in the belly of the ship. The captain withstands him, corrects him, rebukes him. Why, O sleeper, are you down here when everyone else is panicking for their very lives? Maybe your God is the one who will deliver us. Jonah is then interrogated by the sailors. He tells them who he is what's going on, why he's being pursued by this storm. And he tells them there's only one way for you to be delivered. Throw me over the side of the boat. Only one way. My sin has found me out. God is requiring my death. 
for my folly. Now, is this unfair? Only if you don't believe what the Scripture says about the holiness of God. Jonah has sinned against the king of glory. He has disobeyed him. Uh, You might just ask what would have happened in this day or in any other day of antiquity when any servant would have disobeyed his king. For in Israel, God is to be the king. You would be put to death. Jonah's sin is found out. He says, there's only one way that you won't go into death with me, and that's if you throw me off this boat, because surely this storm troubles this boat only on my account. These sailors are noble in one sense, or at least afraid. They say, we don't want to kill this man of God, because who knows, maybe we'll get out of the frying pan and into the fire. God will no longer be upset at us that Jonah's on the boat, but now he'll be upset at us for killing his man. So they steer for the shore, and the storm prevents them. They cannot get there. There's no avoiding this. God in his providential might and justice and wisdom has set it up just for this way. A fish is prepared for Jonah. And so these men pray to God, pray that his blood will not be on their head, and they throw him over. And in a dramatic sign that shows everything they thought to be right was right, the storm ceases like that. The seas become become calm. So again, as we look at this, we wonder, well, what of Jonah, this man who's been thrown into the deep? Well, the sailors say he's dead. Jonah thinks he's dead. Anyone who heard this story would think he's dead. But God has another plan. So I want to read now the text. It's very short, one verse, as to what happens at the end of what we looked at last week, which was the prayer of Jonah in the, uh, the fish's belly. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now that doesn't sound like a glorious account, but it is glorious, isn't it? Because it's a, a type of what Christ will also do. So we think about this today, I want us to look at three points quickly. First of all, the deliverance of Jonah. Second of all, the typology of Jonah. And lastly, the sign of Jonah. So beginning first of all with the deliverance of Jonah, that's what we know about this story, right? Jonah disobeyed God, thrown into the sea, should have died. In fact, as we looked last week, it makes it clear that Jonah is dying Now, whether or not he died, that's a matter of debate. Some preachers and commentators say Jonah died. Some say he didn't die. The language is that you could say he came near death or he died. He talks about going to the depths of Sheol. That's the place of the dead. That's the abode of the dead. He talks about going down even to the pit. He talks about going down even where the bars enclose around him at the depths of the sea. You don't have to do a lot of reading of of Jewish theology to know what he's saying there. He was going to the very edge of death itself, if not into death. Regardless, we know that he prayed a prayer. We don't have that prayer in the scriptures given to us. We have a later prayer that he prays once he's in the belly of the great fish, but it recalls elements of that prayer. We looked at this last week. And he says some of what he prayed, right, that he cried out from the belly of Sheol, from the the belly of death itself, from the place of the dead, he cried out to the Lord. This is a quotation of what? Basically Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cried to you, Lord, hear my voice of pleading. In fact, if you look at this, we talk about this uh, last Sunday. He's quoting a number of psalms. The psalms are a place of expression of the people of God, inspired by God. They uh, 
exclaim our truths, don't they, the Psalms? How many times are you in a, in a woeful position, in a, in a difficult situation? You turn to the Psalms and you find a Psalm that expresses what you desire to say but don't know how to. Jonah's no different. Jonah, as a prophet of God, speaks out and prays out these Psalms. Learn from that. We begin every one of our Sunday morning services with a Psalm. You can tell how many how long we've been doing this because we're at 131 this morning and some psalms take more than one week, don't they? We've been at this for like three years. But they remind us of the importance of the psalms. They were given to the people of God for an important reason. And Jonah shows us that because he prays these psalms. Lord, from the, from the miry pit, deliver me. Deliver me, O God. And God does. But do not think in any sense that it is unjustified for Jonah to be there. It's not unjust. All the problem passages people give us of the Old Testament are not problems at all unless you have a low view of God. Oh, what happened to Achan? How do we explain that? He disobeyed the living God. You say, well, I don't know how to frame that. Well, if you were in war in that day and you disobeyed the general, what would happen to you? You would be killed. Even in our own uh, the last hundred years, people were killed for disobeying orders. Went before a firing squad, court-martialed, found guilty, and put to death for disobeying orders. Achan disobeyed the living God, who was higher than any earthly general. He disobeyed the king of his people, his nation. He sinned against a holy and righteous God. These are not problem passages unless we think God is like us. God is holy and He is righteous. And he demands to be obeyed. And he is right to be obeyed. It is fitting that we obey him. So we see this. So Jonah is thrown into the depths, near death, deserving of it. But one thing that Jonah realizes as the man of God is that there is mercy with God. The irony here is, isn't it, that the very thing he's resisted is being a vehicle of mercy to a people he doesn't think are worthy of it. Well, now Jonah's put in that exact same position of knowing he's not worthy of the mercy of God and yet needing it and yet crying out for it. Oh God, I will now look to Jerusalem. Remember me. Remember your prophet. Remember your man. I put my trust in you even as I go to the depths of Sheol, even as I go down into the depths of death and judgment. God, forget me not. Forget me not. Out of the depths I cry to you, hear my voice, O God. Now he knows God's justice and judgment, but he pleads. He pleads with God out of the depths. Now we uh, come to this 10th verse. And even before this, the entire second chapter is a secondary prayer given in thanksgiving for what God has done in which he recounts all of that. And he's in this the belly of this great fish, that's how it describes it in the, the Hebrew, in the belly of this great or monstrous fish. And is this a vehicle of judgment or salvation? It's a vehicle of salvation. God has provided this fish to deliver Jonah from death. Because where Jonah was going, he was already dying. Sinking, 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 and now delivered by this miraculous intervention of God's creation swallowing Jonah and bringing him up. And we come now after three days and three nights to verse 10, this verse. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. 
There's a lot said in that one verse, isn't there? God's plan of deliverance was not to just keep Jonah drowning in a well's stomach or to keep him captive in a well's stomach. It was ultimately to bring him, I said well there, that's what I'm saying, just expect it occasionally. Um, it's hard to break 20-some years of, of hearing that. But anyway, as, uh, as he spit out, we see the intention of the Lord to deliver Jonah, to deliver him from death and from this captivity in the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. But not only that, look at how God does it. God speaks to this fish, to this great fish, and it obeys him. This fish that he has created or prepared for this moment, God speaks, and instantaneously it obeys. It does what God has told it to do. There's kind of an implicit message there against Jonah, isn't there? The prophet with all his great advantages in knowledge of God does not obey God, but this creature does. This creature does. Also notice that we know where this is going, I assume. The Ninevites, who have none of the advantages of the Israelites, they hear this message that Jonah will bring, and they also repent. The most hard-hearted person in this story is Jonah. Is Jonah, the prophet and man of God. My friends, there is a message here which Jesus will come back to in just a moment. But... That brings us to our second point here because we're seeing here that Jonah in his walking and in his living and in his breathing, breathing and preaching is himself a living picture of God's redemption. He was dead. Think about it as it says in Hebrews of Isaac that Abraham received Isaac as if from the dead, back as if from the dead. Why? Because when he took him to Mount Moriah, he expected him to die. So though God stopped him before he killed or slew Isaac, it's as if he received him back from the dead. And what we see here is, in the same way Jonah is received back as if from the dead, a man who, even if he did not die, was near death, and his only reason for living is the miraculous intervention of God. And so he is spit out. Well, that brings us to this typology that we want to talk about very quickly. Typology has been very much on our plate the last couple of years in Hebrews, you can think over and over about uh, the typology that we see there. What is a type? It's a person, an event. It's something that points forward to something that's fulfilled or shown in a greater form later, right? So we talk about typology in Hebrews. We can go to any one of those many examples. How about just Moses? Moses is like Jesus in some regards, isn't he? He points to Jesus. Both literally, he says that there'll be a prophet who will one day come like me. Unto him you shall listen. He's a great leader of the people of God. Jesus certainly is that. He's a preacher of righteousness. Jesus is that. He's a deliverer of the people of God. Jesus is that. But in all ways, Christ is greater. This is what the author of Hebrews says when he says, Moses was a servant in all God's house. He was a steward in the household of the people of God. Jesus is also a servant, but greater. Why? Because he's the son. He's the heir. He is over the household of God. That's typology. It points to something very much like it, but greater. Jonah is a type of Christ. Think about this just for a moment. By the way, being a type does not lessen your reality. It doesn't make you a fable. You're real. You're a person. Like Jonah is a real person, but he points to Christ. Christ makes this point. God is working through the type to reveal the antitype, to help us to understand the antitype. And in some cases, we go to the antitype, which is the fulfillment of the type, and it helps us to better understand the type. So all this is important to what we're thinking about. 
So there are points of similarity in this story. It's just that Jesus is greater. There are points of contrast. We need to recognize that. Jesus is greater. In in what ways can we see that of Moses? Well, we said it a moment ago. Moses is a servant in the household. Jesus is over. How about this? Moses is a sinner. Jesus is not. Moses is a great man of God, but he is a sinner. He needed to be redeemed by the work of God in Christ Jesus, who went to Calvary's cross. Moses delivered just as we are, by faith in what God was to do. But Moses needed redemption. Jesus did not. So we can see this working out of topology in the greater form. Jonah is a prophet. He's a man of God, a preacher of righteousness. So is Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jonah falls under the judgment of God. Guess what? Jesus does too. Jesus does too. What else? um, Jonah is miraculously raised from the dead. Christ was too. Jonah's miracle is the occasion of salvation moving to the Gentiles. And so it is with Christ. But these, there are dissimilarities that also need to be noted here, right? Jonah was judged, and we said Christ was judged by God as well. But there's a huge difference there, isn't there? Jonah was judged for his own sin. Christ was not judged for his sin. Christ went to Calvary's cross bearing our sin, the sin of others. And so we need to recognize here that's a stark difference between the two. Christ is sinless. Jonah was not. Christ did not need salvation. Jonah did. What about this? We mentioned a moment ago that uh, he was miraculously raised from the dead. Well, maybe Jonah died. Maybe he didn't. Christ definitely died. We say in the Heidelberg Catechism, why was Christ buried? What's the simple answer? To show that he truly died. What an elegant answer that is. But he died. The Apostles' Creed, which we'll read later, says that he went even to the place of the dead, descended to the dead. Again, this is what we believe, what we profess as Christians. Christ died an atoning death, but the grave could not hold him. And so his resurrection is greater than that of of Jonah, who maybe died but definitely was vomited out of a fish. But Christ rose triumphant from the grave. That is a great dissimilarity between the two, even where there is similarity. And we mentioned that Jonah took, uh, Jonah, after he was raised, if you will, took the gospel to Gentiles. Well, he took what was known of the gospel in that day, a message of repentance and turning toward God in faith. He took that to one city of the Gentiles. And God did a great movement of salvation. But there's a difference there. Because Christ tore down the middle partition, didn't he? by his death, that would take the gospel to all the earth, if you will, all the nations of the earth. So what Jonah did in a small part, Christ did in its greatest form. And so again, we see this, that there are similarities and dissimilarities. As Christ tore down or broke down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, as Paul testifies. So the raising up of Jonah is significant. We don't want to in any way say that it's not. It's a vehicle of of salvation to many, but it is still small, a small measure of what Christ did. Christ's miracle is what avails. Christ's miracle is what we focused on. Christ's miracle, his death, his burial, his resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and high priesthood are what our hope is in scripturally. I like what uh, the great Hugh Martin wrote on this. He said it simply, he died the death to an end. He died it all. He died it out. 
He died death, dead, and done. And amen. That's what Christ did. And so, praise be to God, because as great a salvation as Jonah is a picture of, the salvation that we needed and were hoping in and waiting for is found in Christ alone. It is Christ who is mighty to save. And we give Him praise this morning. So Jonah is a type of Christ, and that's important. But even then, that doesn't get to the fullness of what we need to talk about quickly. There is a sign of Jonah. Brother Ben read the text earlier, uh, playing on this imagery, this typology. Jesus says, as Ben read a moment ago, about a sign of Jonah. And this is debated. It sh- I don't think it should be, but it's debated as to what this sign is. If you look at it, again, what's going on in chapter 12 of Matthew? We went through this not too long ago on, on Sunday evenings. There is opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are opposing Christ and his ministry. They have turned against him clearly to the point at which he does a miracle of, of casting demons out and they say, well, you do this by the power of Satan, the Beelzebub, right? I mean, you can't get any more against Christ than this. It's to the point where there's a warning here, right, about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So this is serious. The opposition is getting serious. And though he's done sign after sign after sign after sign after sign, they come back to this point again and say, Teacher, give us a sign. Give us one more. Give us a great one. And then we'll believe. But Jesus knows what's in their heart. Is this real? Are they waiting for a better sign? If he does something a little bit more spectacular, suddenly these are going to be people. No, faith doesn't come that way. It doesn't come through signs. All the people who say, if God would just write some message in the sky, I would believe, all doubt would go away. It will, that's not true. It will not. We know this because great miracles are worked in the front of people who did not believe. And guess what? They still didn't believe. Jesus, in responding to someone who wants to go back and testify to his brothers, he says, if they will not listen to Moses, they will not even listen to one risen from the dead. Signs do not save. Can signs be a help to weak faith? Yes. Yes. But they do not create faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God, not by signs and wonders. A faithless generation clamor for a sign, right? A faithless generation desires a sign. Faith doesn't work that way. And so they're crying out again, give us one more sign. And he says, no. Mark's gospel, it's pretty explicit. In Matthew and Luke, a little bit more talked about here. He says, no. An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, this is what is fascinating to me. People debate what the sign is. They say, well, it's, it's his teaching. It's his proclamation of a message of repentance. But Jesus tells you what it is. He immediately goes on to describe what the sign is. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah is resurrection. Resurrection. Now, what's interesting about this, and I'm going to cut short what I want to say here just because of time, but this is important. So I want to get touch on this. There's a little bit different emphasis placed in Luke's gospel. So when you get a chance, look at this. But I'm just going to read the relevant part here from Luke chapter 11. This is 29 through 32. It says a similar thing. 
They ask for a sign. And Jesus says, this is an evil generation. Before evil and adulterous, these are the words of Moses in Deuteronomy, more or less chastising a people drawn toward idolatry. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, I want you to listen to this, because this is a little different emphasis and something that is important for us to hear. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Notice there's not just a sign of Jonah, but Jonah himself is a sign. Jonah is a man, a messenger of God, and he himself is a message from God, which is what? All people deserve the judgment of God. All people should fall under the wrath of God, but by grace salvation is available through faith. Jonah had faith. Jonah is saved. Now that is the reality. The sign of Jonah is that he is a picture of resurrected life. Whether he died or not, just like Isaac is a picture of resurrection life, that God has provided a substitute and Isaac lives because of the sacrifice of the substitute. So in the same way, Jonah survives because he is risen back as if from the dead. And because of that, the message of the gospel goes out to Gentiles. Now, if you don't believe the Gentile part of that, in just a second, we're going to continue. But look at this. Jonah himself is a living sign. What is a sign? A simeon. It's what, it's what God is doing, an evident working of God that teaches us something. That might be a simple definition of it. There is a sign in, Joseph, in, excuse me, in Jonah's resurrection that we need to hear. It's seen more evidently in the resurrection of Christ than it is in Jonah. And that is this, that God is doing a mighty work and His resurrection is His stamp of approval upon it. Will Jonah go to Nineveh as God has declared? Yes. If it means he has to be swallowed by a fish, if it means he has to nearly drown, if it means he has to be spit up and vomited up on a shore, he will go to Nineveh. And God will break down this middle wall of separation as He always promised and declared. He promised Abraham that his seed would be a great nation. But he also promised that through that seed, all the nations will be blessed. He hasn't decided against that plan. He declared that plan. And this is how he's going to do it, through this ministry of Christ. And you resist him. And you withstand him. And you oppose him. Kind of like what Jonah did. Kind of like what Jonah did. But God is still going to take his gospel to the Gentiles. He's still going to do it because he's declared from the beginning that he's going to do it. And if you wonder if he is who he says he is and if God's stamp of approval is upon him, the resurrection settles the debate. Peter says this in his Pentecost sermon, doesn't he? This Christ whom you crucified, he says. What's your verdict upon Jesus? A blasphemer and a liar, worthy of judgment, worthy of the death of God, the death, excuse me, before God. And then what does he then say? God's verdict is, God raised him up. God raised him up. Death cannot hold him. He himself is sinless. God would not allow, as the psalmist said, for him to see corruption. He raised him up. Just as the sign of Jonah was a sign of God continuing to fulfill the promise to take the gospel out to the Gentile world, it is fulfilled in Christ. It is in Christ that he keeps the promise that he made to Abraham 
that all nations will be blessed through his seed. My friends, if you are here today, most of you are probably Gentiles. Most of us account our salvation through this thing that is being spoken of and even pictured back with Jonah, that Jonah resisted, that all of the generation of Christ resisted, but God was steadfastly doing to graft the wild branches into the olive tree. And so, my friends, when we look at this text, we need to see that there are glories here. And why is this the perfect text for today? Because when we come to a baptism, we think about what baptism pictures. It pictures our participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by faith. The reason we're Baptists, right, or one of the main reasons that we're Baptists, I hope it's not just because you were born a Baptist, but it's because we hold some doctrinal positions, don't we? We don't believe in sprinkling. Why? Because the New Testament tells us that this is a picture of going down into death with Christ, being buried with Him there, and rising up to new life. Now, we don't dislike our brothers, our Presbyterian brothers. We love our brothers in Christ. We just disagree with them on this. We believe the Scriptures teach us that this baptism is a picture of, of our participation by faith in what Christ has done, and this pictures it. So, my friends, as we come today to Brother Franklin being baptized, this is a perfect text for us to think about. What Jonah was typology, a typology of, was fulfilled in Christ, we see again today in baptism, that Christ died an atoning death, was buried. But praise the Lord, death could not hold him. He arose. And because he lives, we too, by faith and his grace, shall likewise live. Amen.